This has been a good morning, and uh, it has been amazing to hear you sing this morning. You know you sound good, right? Uh, And you have pleased God's heart with your sacrifice of praise today. Now, the question is, are you ready together? Yes. Okay, here it is. Are you ready to study God's Word today? All right, let's go ahead and get our Bibles And we're going to be in Micah a little bit later today. Uh, But as we finish up this series called Bible Basics, this series that we started a month ago looking at methods of Bible study and different tools and resources that we can use. And then last week we had the three-hour Bible study session together and then looked particularly at how to break down a passage of Scripture, uh, Psalm 77. This week we are going to finish this series with a look at how to handle the Old Testament. There is so much confusion sometimes among Christians about what do we do with the Old Testament, and especially people who are outside of the church, people in culture, and they look at the Old Testament and they say, what is it with you Christians and that Old Testament stuff? Because most people don't have a problem with the New Testament. The New Testament has basically four sections, the Gospels, which tell the stories of the life of Jesus, Acts, which tells the stories of the beginning of the New Testament church after Jesus returned to heaven. The epistles, which are the letters that the apostles wrote to the early churches. And then Revelation. And even Revelation, although it is complicated and layered and challenging to understand at times, but Revelation is still New Testament. And so it doesn't tell us you know, to sacrifice doves and lambs on an altar. It doesn't tell us that we can't eat lobster or shellfish. Thank God in the Maritimes, aren't we glad for that? It doesn't, you know, and so it doesn't have all these rules and laws from the Old Testament. And so we kind of even get revelation. But what do we do with the Old Testament? It can be confusing for Christians today. Until we realize that the Old Testament contains the Old Covenant with the Israelites that is different than the New Covenant that Christians live under today. Listen to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, and with the people of Judah. And so the old covenant's purpose was to prepare the way for the new covenant with Jesus. Romans 10 verse 4 says, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. And so listen, We learn from the Old Testament, but we don't live in the New Testament. Or, I'm sorry, the Old Testament. (laughs) Let me say that again. We learn from the Old Testament, but we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the New Covenant with Jesus. This winter, I realized something. I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about the Old Testament laws and the New Testament of Jesus And I realized that I think maybe it's a lot like learning how to ski. 
That's self-explanatory, right? No, I probably need to unpack that a little bit. Uh, see, when it comes to learning how to ski, the last 10 years, Tracy and I, our family, we have lived in Alabama, deep, deep down south. Now, we love the north, and the truth is we missed living in the north. We missed being in the north for those 10 years, but one thing we did not miss is winter. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so for those 10 years, we lived in Alabama. We did not have to deal with winter, and it was glorious. It was so beautiful. So last year, when we realized that God was leading us to come back to the land of my birth, New Brunswick, the land of eternal winter, (laughs) can I get an amen? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) People say that it's spring on the calendar, but I'm not buying it. Snowing this morning. I don't know what's wrong with this place. So, so instead, of, instead of dreading winter, which I had often done in the past, and enjoyed for those 10 years not having winter, we realized that because I, I like to be outdoors and active and doing things, that I needed to find some ways to look forward to winter, to look forward to snow rather than dreading it. So, we decided maybe it would be a good idea that I would learn how to ski. Tracy figured it would get me out of the house. And so, and so, uh, so that was my goal this winter, learn how to ski. And so, at the beginning in, uh, of the winter in late December, I went to Poli Mountain, and I rented some skis, and I got some lessons, and if you have never tried to learn to ski as an adult, learning to ski as a young person doesn't count. If you have never learned to ski at my age, let me inform you of something, it's not easy. Or I'll say it in Alabama, it ain't easy. And so uh, I I went to Poli Mountain and and I see all these people going up the lift and coming down the mountain so graceful and beautiful, they look just like this, you know, swoosh, 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 and they're just, oh, it's, I, and I thought, that's going to be me. I could just taste it. It was so beautiful. I could just see myself. And so the instructor is ready, and I, I've got my, my rental skis, and I'm ready for the lift to go up the mountain. And the instructor says, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going up the mountain. We're going over to the what? To the, the bunny hill. This is not a happy place, the bunny hill. Because on the bunny hill, he didn't teach me how to swoosh down the mountain like this. He taught me to do something called the snowplow. <laughs> or for little kids now, they call it make pizza, pizza wedge. Make, make it go like pizza. The snowplow. The snowplow from hell. It's, it is not fun. <laughs> it is very difficult to snowplow. And so... He gave me hope, though. He said, listen, Joel, you're not ready to go up the mountain yet. But understand, the goal is not that you would snowplow for the rest of your life. This is just the beginning revelation of better things that are yet to come. Kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. First, you need to learn to snowplow down the bunny hill before you can learn to swoosh down the mountain. 
which was good news because I watched the Olympics this winter and I didn't see anybody snow plowing down the mountain at the Olympics. And the Old Testament was kind of like the snowplow on the bunny hill. It was the beginning stages of God's revelation to humanity that foreshadowed greater things that were yet to come because it all pointed us toward Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, the law was our guardian. It was our guide. It was our instructor until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Once you learn how to ski on the mountain, you don't go back to snow plowing on the bunny hill. Once we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we don't go back to the observance of the Old Testament law because in Christ, it has already been fulfilled for us. And that's good news. But now we're left with, well, what do we do with the Old Testament if we now live in the new covenant with Jesus? Well, one of the areas that many people struggle with, we already talked a little bit about the Levitical law and how it's been fulfilled. But what do you do now with the prophets? You have this section right in the middle of the Bible where you have these prophets who just seem like really weird angry guys who are upset all the time. Let me read to you some of the words of the prophets. Amos called the people of Bashan greedy cows. Isaiah accused the people of God of holding evil assemblies. Ezekiel confronted false leaders in the church and said, you are jackals among the ruins. Hosea accused God's people of cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. Micah accused the people of God of being cannibals who eat their own brother's flesh. Malachi called those who withhold their tithes and offerings from God as thieves and robbers who steal from God's pockets. Can you imagine looking somebody in the eye and saying things to people like the prophets said to people? And what's even wilder than the things they said are the things that they did. Hosea, under direction from God, married a prostitute to show the people how unfaithful they had been to Father God. Ezekiel lay flat on his side for 390 days, then got up and ate food cooked over excrement in order to speak to the people about how they had defiled themselves before God. Jeremiah went out and got some underwear, wore the underwear around dirty for a few days, then went out and buried them under a rock, left them there a few days later, came back, dug up the dirty underwear and waved them around in the air to demonstrate how dirty and unfaithful and filthy our sins are and our attitudes before a holy God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that a pastor would probably get fired for doing that stuff. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not thinking about trying. <laughs> but, but, but why were the prophets so upset? all the time. Well, grab your Bible and find the book of Micah. Micah is in the middle of your Bible. It's not very big. It's just seven chapters. 
and if you find the bigger books of prophecy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, it's just a few books after that, past Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and you will find Micah. Micah kind of sums up for us why the prophets were often so upset. And it's because God revealed things to them and burdened them with a heavy heart in this way. That God gave them eyes to see things that other people in society did not see. God gave them ears to hear things that other people were not hearing. God gave them a spirit of discernment to recognize problems in their culture that most people thought are not a problem. And this made them outsiders. It made them unpopular because the prophets spoke for God. And many times, even as Christians, we say we want to hear from God. We say we want to have things God's way. We say that we want for God's will to be done. But frankly, even as Christians, many times what we want instead is our way. For our will to be done. For example, look at Micah chapter 2 verse 11. The prophet Micah said in chapter 2 verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. What does wine and beer do? Does wine and beer make you more alert? Does it make you more aware of your surroundings? Does it help you make better decisions? No. What beer and wine do is they dull our senses. They make us less aware of that which is going on around us. They make our thinking less clear. And Micah says that's what people want. Somebody who will tell them what they want to hear. In other words, in our society today, a prophet might point out that society says, so what if 8,000 children are born with or are infected with AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa? It's the leading cause of death. So what if just down the road from this room, there are children who are living in communities of violence, in fear, and desperate for hope. People might say, so what if churches often sit around holding hands and having potlucks and patting each other on the back while all around us people are dying and going to hell? So what if in Canada, among teenagers today, suicide is the second leading cause of death? So what if in, in Canada today, in the last 10 years, sexually transmitted diseases have increased by 69%? Let me say that again. In Canada, the second leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide, and sexually transmitted diseases have increased by almost 69%. Do you think we're headed in the right direction? Folks, there is a problem in Canada, 
And God's heart breaks for our culture. God's heart breaks for people who are lost and confused. And our role as the church is to love them to Jesus. And so that's what breaks the heart of a prophet. See, the Old Testament prophets saw things in society that others thought, eh, it's no big deal. Here in the book of Micah in chapter 6, John Ortberg suggests that Micah sums up for us the whole message of the prophets in terms of what God is looking for us to do with our lives. This is so powerful. And so we're going to read this together, Micah chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. And so let's go ahead and we're going to read it out loud together. Are you ready? We have it on the screen. Some of you have it in the Bible, in your own Bible. We're reading from the New International Version. Here we go, all together. Micah asked this question. Here we go. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so what you see here is, is Micah asking this question, what does God want from us? And, and with each sacrifice, he ups the scale at each level. And so it starts with burnt offerings. Grain offerings, burnt offerings. This is something that anybody could do. Anybody could afford. But then he escalates to calves a year old. A calf a year old is something more expensive that not everyone could afford or be able to give. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Thousands of rams is a gift to God that only a king could afford to give, or 10,000 rivers of oil. Not even a king has 10,000 rivers of oil. And then he asks, or shall I offer my firstborn child for my transgression, for my sin? And I think here he is referring to all around them in that ancient culture, other religions, other pagan groups would sacrifice their own children to appease their pagan gods. And Micah says, is this what God wants from us? And he gives the answer, oh, no, no, no. You see, it's much more than that. Look at the answer in verse 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Would you read that with me, that last little section all together? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah says, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, I don't know what God wants from my life. I don't know what it means to live a holy life. I don't know how to live out the Bible. And, and, and he says, look, 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 stop with all the excuses. It's a lot simpler than sometimes we make it out to be. What God wants of us, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is first of all, to act justly. Or some translations say, 
to do justice. Because justice is not a passive word. Justice is an action word. It means that when you see something that is wrong, you see what you can do about it. We, I just mentioned that we lived for the last 10 years in Alabama. And there, there is a large population of immigrants who have come from uh, Mexico and Guatemala, many of whom do not speak English. And uh, one day, Tracy went to the post office to mail something, uh, mail a package. And as she stood in line at the post office, the line was quite long. And she's not really paying attention. You know, she's focused on other things. But after a while, she realizes that there's a commotion at the front of the line. And it's a Latino man who does not speak English very well, who's trying to mail a package, and the postal worker is being very unkind, very unhelpful, very rude. And, and, and you could feel the temperature rise in the room. People in the line are starting to get upset. They're starting to uh, grumble to each other because they're having to wait. And so Tracy says as she's assessing the situation and, and realize what's going on, she, she starts to get out of line to go forward to help this man, to try to intercede, to stand up to this postal worker who is not being helpful and is being inconsiderate. And, and just as she prepares to move, they get the situation worked out and, and the man leaves. And later in the day, she said, Joel, I, I got so upset because she said, I was, I was evaluating why were people getting angry that day? Why were people upset in that line? Was it because they were watching an injustice take place? Is that why they were angry? No. It's because they were being inconvenienced and having to wait. And in our culture, so often, when people get upset, it's not because they're standing up for someone else. So often it's because, well, I didn't get what I deserve. I'm offended. Things didn't go my way. To act justly. Miroslav Volf wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. In the book, a woman from Eastern Europe said, I'm a Muslim. I'm 35 years old. To my second son, I gave the name Jihad so he would not forget the testament of his mother, revenge. She said, the first time I put my baby at my breast, I told him, may this milk choke you if you ever forget. She said, for the Serbs taught me how to hate. And this woman goes on to describe her work as a teacher, how the very people that she taught and cared for became her enemies. She, she said, my student, Zoran, the only son of my neighbor, urinated into my mouth as the bearded hooligans stood around laughing at me. And he said, you are good for nothing else, you stinking Muslim woman. Folks, we live in a world where these kinds of injustices are happening every day. And Micah says, this is what God requires of you, to be an agent 
of justice. And listen, it can be so easy to become discouraged because we look at all the things that we can't do. There's so much that we can't do, so many that we can't help, but there are some that we can. Are we doing what we can? We are so excited as we work towards this fall a whole new system of small groups that many of you will hopefully be part of leadership in that and others will participate in. That as we serve each other, we will also go out into the community and serve the needs of people and address the injustices in our society. In fact, to get a taste of the great things yet to come, next month we're going to start a series called Because Love, where we have a team right now, our Love My City team, who are preparing, working with agencies around our city that, that address injustice so that we, next month as we head into the spring, can together get out on the streets of our city to act justly. And to number two, love mercy. Micah says to love mercy. The, the Hebrew word here is hesed. It, it, it means something in the way of kindness, but it is very specifically all throughout the Old Testament when this Hebrew word is used, it means very specifically the kind of love and mercy that God gives to us even though we don't deserve it. In other words, it's saying, the way God treats me, I need to treat others that same way. In the town of Paradise, California, there was a young man named John Gilbert. When he was five years old, John was diagnosed with something called Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. His family was told that it would eventually destroy every muscle in his body and in a decade or so take his life. And so every year, John lost something. Uh, the first year, he, uh, as, as his disease progressed, he lost his ability to run. Uh, the next year, he lost the ability to walk straight. And at the age of 25, John Gilbert wrote the story of his own life, knowing that he was about to die. And at that point, he was only able to barely operate the mouse on a computer. He was no longer able to control the rest of his body. And so as he wrote of this journey and the struggles that he had been through, looking back upon his life at 25 years old, he said, I think probably the hardest part of my life was middle school. We feel for you middle schoolers. It's a hard time. John Ortberg, I heard him uh, quote a, a, another person one time who said that uh, Catholics believe in purgatory and maybe they're right. Maybe there is such a thing as purgatory and it's called junior high. <laughs> <laughs> and as you look around this, uh, this, this room, we think of those of us who know what it's like to have faced that kind of challenge. It was worse for John though because he was different. He was bullied and humiliated until he was afraid to go to school. And no one ever stood up for him. Uh, maybe because they were afraid for themselves, afraid to act justly and to love mercy. But there were other moments in his life when kindness was shown to John. One year when 
he was just a, a child. He was named California's ambassador for MD. And after a special day of meeting with the governor and uh, having multiple meetings throughout the day, that night he was the guest of honor at a special charity fundraiser auction. It was being put on by the National Football League. And so there were all these big pro football players, these huge guys, and they all talked to John, and one of them let him try on their big, huge Super Bowl ring. John says it came down almost to his wrist. <laughs> and, uh, but from the second that he walked in the room, there was one thing, one item in the auction that John could not take his eyes off of. It was a basketball from the Sacramento Kings with the signatures of all the players on the team. And even though John could not hardly walk, he loved basketball. And Sacramento was his favorite team. And he wanted that ball as much as anything he had ever wanted. And so when the auction began, he already had it set in his mind. He already knew how much money he had saved up. And so as soon as the bidding began, he was the first one with his little hand in the air. And he made his bid, and the bidding continued, and the price rose until finally his heart was broken. It got all the way up to $1,000, which was more than he had. And his mother looked at him and said, I'm sorry, John, we can't afford that. And so the bidding continued to escalate as little John watched the numbers climb, 1,000, 2,000. And suddenly at a certain moment, there was someone in the back of the room who called out a ridiculous number far beyond what anyone else was bidding. And immediately everyone else was quiet. The auctioneer shout, sold, sold, sold. And this man walked from the back of the room. And he went up and he grabbed hold of this basketball that he had purchased for thousands and thousands of dollars. And he turned around and instead of walking back to his seat, he went over to little John Gilbert and placed it on his lap. And the whole room broke into applause as that basketball was placed in the crippled hands, hands that would never make a three-point shot, hands that would never dribble the ball down the court, Hands that would never make a pass to a teammate. But see, people know when they see acts of generosity and mercy that they're seeing the heart of God. When's the last time you bought a basketball for someone? When's the last time you served, not for attention, but because of love? This last uh, month, I was talking to uh, one of our children's ministry volunteers who just pours into the lives of our children each Sunday. Not because they get any special award, but because of love. I, I, I've had the opportunity this winter to talk to people who every week come and serve with our teenagers to pour into the next generation. Why? Because it'll make them rich and famous? No, because of love. Last week we went and walked with, with Harvest House and I've so enjoyed getting to, to share with people here in our church who serve in places like Harvest House throughout the week. Why? Because it'll make them rich and famous to serve the poor and the homeless? No, it's because of love. It's acting justly. 
and loving mercy. And then finally, he says to walk humbly with your God. See, this was the entirety of the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament was pointing us forward to Jesus. And so we've mentioned a number of times throughout the service that today is Palm Sunday. On Friday, this week, is called Good Friday. It's the day that 2,000 years ago Jesus died on the cross, paying the price for the sins of the world. But five days before that, on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem as the people waved palm branches before him. And so all of the Old Testament was fulfilled, the prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. Why did he come into Jerusalem and allow himself to be crucified, to die on the cross? It's because he was acting justly. You see, God is a just God. God cannot just turn a blind eye. Justice must be served. Sin and corruption and evil must be punished in this world. There are consequences. God cannot just turn his back and pretend that the sin of this world does not matter. Justice must be served. And so Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. We are the ones who deserve to be beaten and bruised and rejected. We are the ones who have done wrong. We are the ones as humans who have committed evil. We deserve it, not Jesus. But he died in our place because as a God of justice, he loves mercy. You see, we serve a merciful God he wants to forgive us. He wants to set us free from our suffering. Even though we deserve the punishment for our sins, He extends mercy to us if, if we will walk humbly with our God. You see, this is the key. We have to humble ourselves before Him. We have to confess and admit that we are not nearly as good as we pretend to be. To believe and receive the gift of Jesus on the cross. And that is the message of the Old Testament. You see, we learn from the Old Covenant, but we don't live under it. Its purpose is and always has been to point us towards Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the forgiver of our sins, and the only one who can restore our broken relationship with Father God. Will you stand? And so perhaps you are here today and you have never made that commitment to surrender yourself before Him. Understanding that the justice of God 
means that you don't deserve his forgiveness, but the mercy of God means he has made way for your forgiveness if you will humble yourself before him. And so maybe today God is speaking to your heart and saying, won't you come to me? Look at what I have done for you. Won't you receive me as your Lord and your Savior? If you need to make that decision today, would you just now, in your heart, all together as we just spend some quiet moments meditating upon what God has spoken to us, if you right now need to make that decision of surrender, in your heart right now, would you say, Father, forgive me, for I am not as good as I have pretended to be. But I know that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. And I receive his forgiveness. In humility, I come before you and ask you to be my Savior, to restore this broken relationship, this broken relationship between me and my Father. And if you prayed that right now, you can know for certain that he has heard the prayer of a humble heart. <coughs> for the very meaning of this day, that word Hosanna, Palm Sunday, Hosanna is what they called out as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, meaning God, save us. We worship you today. We declare Hosanna because you are the God who saves. In Jesus' name, we thank you. We praise you.